welcome to Radio Trivia Podcast Edition. Uh, this is episode 95, and with me right to my left. Right to my left. Dear Lord. Uh, left on, to your right. Left. Oh. <laughs> on my left is Jonathan Metz. What up, everybody? And uh, we have five listener requests this uh, this episode. Just trying to clear some of the... Trying to clear some of the backlog. Uh, yes, if, if you're familiar with RFN, um, you already maybe know this, but there is a dog, and he is here. <laughs> anyway, we got five five uh, requests here, so uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy your fellow listeners' requests. On to the first game. First game. Game one. Yes, that's it. <laughs> that is the first song. Yeah, but it's good enough. Thank you. 
That song is so good. It is, and uh, I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but Johnny's uh, kind of playing Link's Awakening on the side here, and I don't know how I could play that game without the music on. It's uh, not hard. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it has a very good soundtrack. Yeah, it does. Uh, I've uh, heard it before. Yeah, okay, fine. Anyway, uh, that was the second song. Uh, we have a question here. I think uh, Johnny's going to read it for you. Sure. Once this game starts, what's the very first thing that you do that makes this game unusual for its time? The very first thing that you as the player do. This one's pretty easy. We yeah. do like to start the show with an easy game, and uh, of course, it's the original Metroid for NES. It was requested by Sebastian. Oh man, I be Sebastian from Chile. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's probably only one Sebastian from Chile who listens to the show. All right. Well, jeez. Uh, I mean, I played Metroid when I was little and totally didn't get it, mm-hmm. and then I played it again. Oh, maybe when I maybe in the version of Metroid Prime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I played through it. I really enjoyed it, even in spite of its warts. And yes. it does have some warts. Oh, yes. <laughs> the original Metroid is difficult to play nowadays. And also, I think... I mean, it's interesting to play the original from a historical standpoint, but I think the Zero Mission on Game Boy Advance is just oh, yeah. so drastically improved. It's essentially the same game with a lot more added to it and with everything refined and prettied up. And I just think if all you care about is playing Metroid for the first time, you should play Zero Mission. If you've already played Zero Mission and a bunch of other Metroid games, you want to see where it all started, sure, go back and play the NES game, but you don't you don't need to just to experience it. Yeah, um, I almost feel like you need to play another Metroid before you're capable of playing the first Metroid, because then at least you know kind of the general structure of the game and sort of what you're supposed to be doing in terms of exploring and using upgrades, because when I first played it, you know, it was the first game I'd played of that style. It was just like, where the hell am I supposed to go? Exactly. Why do I only have 30 
hit points before I die, and why do I die right away? It's one of the earliest non-linear games, and it really doesn't tell you, there's a, almost no text in the game, there's no story, there's no visual clues really to tell you what to do. It's, it's very much based on exploring and trying things and finding out what works and using your creative imagination to solve problems. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult because of that. I mean, a lot of Nintendo's games that, that followed later followed used some of the similar challenges, but they gave you a little bit more clues and they, they guided you in a more intuitive way to the answer. Yeah. Part of the problem was the technology they were dealing with in, in Metroid for the NES. It's pretty rough. Yeah, it's, it's like they couldn't really give a lot of visual cues, because, partially because the tile set was so limited. Right. I mean, most of the rooms look the same. Right. I mean, maybe they varied up in the different sections, but within a different section of the game, it, it, it's the same in the other areas that you can go through, but those walls look exactly the same as the other walls are no subtle clues. So it's, it's like, it's, 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 it's brutal. Yeah, but at the same time, you can't... You really can't underestimate the importance and the influence of the original Metroid, and and I think the bonus question goes straight to that because the very first thing you do in Metroid that makes it unusual for its time is you go left. Mm -hmm. This is a what looks like a 2D platformer, and 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 which to that you know at that point pretty much all of them involve moving to the right for the entire game. Mario, Ninja Gaiden, you know, you name it. Yeah. Pretty much any 2D side-scrolling game, you always went to the right for whatever reason, and in this game. You go to the right and you can't proceed, and mm -hmm. the only thing left to do is to go to the left, and there you get the Maru Maru, now known as the Morph Ball, and uh, and it lets you roll up into a ball and, and go under and, and proceed to the right. And that kind of sets you up for the entire game being non-linear, literally non-linear, in that you also go up and down, there are these giant vertical shafts that you have to traverse. and. It's a, it's very much a game where you have to challenge your notions of which direction you should go to proceed. Was it really called Maru Maru in the English version when it first was released? Yeah. So they like that's in the like... that's in the instruction manual. Yeah. Oh wow. It's the Maru Maru, which is a I think it's a Japanese onomatopoeia for rolling or something. Or something yeah. The sound of something spinning or rolling. Yeah, something like that. Wow. I guess they changed that. Pika pika. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's Metroid. If you've never heard that music before, I, you know, I bet you were pretty impressed with it. That, I think the compositions are so interesting. It's mostly Hip Tanaka, right? Yeah, yeah. that's Hip Tanaka. And, and I think the Famicom Disk System has an extra channel. It sounds a bit different. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm used to the NES version, so I, I think I like that one more. But yeah. that's surely because that's what I'm familiar with. Oh, wow, I should hear that. The, yeah. The disc version. Then. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Sebastian. Uh, we're going to go on to the next game now. Next game. Game two.
Kind of short but creepy. Very creepy, and and I'll I'll just say that even if you've played this game, you might not recognize that song, even if you've heard a version of it. That, that song really brings me back. It's very, very recognizable. And I don't think it was ever repeated in exactly the same way in the later games. Oh, man, you're giving hints left and right here. I'm trying. Why? It's supposed to be a hard game. Why are you making it so easy? <laughs> All right. What item gives you coordinates to other important quest items? Coordinates. Pretty classic stuff there. Yeah, short songs, but pretty iconic. Because mm-hmm. um, they've been repeated so many times in different versions and variations. Because this is Dragon Warrior for the NES. Of course, also known as Dragon Quest in Japan. The first one, the one that is, in my opinion, a little bit janky. Yeah, well, maybe that's a theme of this show, I don't know. But it's, it's a little, I mean, it's unrefined for sure. But I think the core gameplay is the same as it is in all the other games, and it's still really good. The only problem is the original Dragon Warrior is... I mean, it was the first... I believe it was the first what we would consider Japanese RPG for the Famicom, for the Mm -hmm. NES. And I think... Well, in America, I think it was actually released after Final Fantasy, which is hilarious, because Final Fantasy was essentially a clone, or or at least inspired by Dragon Warrior. It was an attempt by Square to... Um, to, to do Dragon Warrior, but better, to do it a little fancier. And so, by the time Dragon Warrior was, was actually released in America, it did look really dated. I think it came out in like 1989 or 90. I mean, wow. it was, yeah, it was, it was like three or four years after the Japanese release, and it was 
very dated looking. It looked like a really primitive early NES game. I mean, the, I think Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest 3 was probably already out in Japan by the time Dragon Warrior came to America. And, and to, to Enix's credit, they actually ended up releasing all of the Famicom Dragon Quest games in America as Dragon Warrior 1 through 4. So the Dragon Warrior 4 came out after Super Nintendo. Actually, well, actually, games. well, I think it came out in '93, so it was well after Super Nintendo. Yeah, but <laughs> it, was it after, wasn't alone. It was I'm... after Final Fantasy IV came out in America. Yeah, I, on, on the NES, Nintendo and, and some third parties actually did support the NES for a little while mm-hmm. after the Super Nintendo came out, which you can't really say for more recent Nintendo systems. I mean, Kirby came out in probably '93. There was Star Tropics games. That's true. Star Tropics Two. It was like, like one of the last NES like games. Yeah. It was like 90, yeah, it was really late, 94, 95. But, you know, the I, probably the most important thing about Dragon Warrior, at least the American version, is that Nintendo Power gave away copies of it for free to subscribers. And that was a huge deal. I mean, first of all, I think it was a really great marketing strategy for Nintendo of America because they probably knew that this old, primitive-looking game in a genre that Americans did not really understand probably would not sell well. You know, they wanted to bring it out for whatever reason, but... They probably knew that they'd have a hard time marketing it. So instead, they took a bath on it, and they said, we're just going to give out probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of copies. I mean, Nintendo Power was extremely, it was a big deal back then in the late 80s, and, or, well, I guess the early 90s. And so they gave out a lot of free copies of Dragon Warrior, and they put it in people's hands and sort of showed them what it was all about. And I actually, at the time, I think I did not have a subscription or I didn't I didn't renew during the window that you would have to do to get the free copy for some reason so I never got it but my friends did and I played their copy of it and so then I ended up um, asking for Dragon Warrior 2 for Christmas probably that same year or the year after and loved it and played the crap out of it and ended up playing a lot of Dragon Warrior 3 and Dragon Warrior 4 as well and that really set me up for a lot more JRPGs down the road. So, I mean, it, it, even though I didn't even get one of those free copies, it still worked on me. I mean, they, Nintendo of America, through through the Nintendo Power promotion, pretty much created a fan base for Japanese RPGs in America. I don't think they would do that these days. No, no, no. It was a very different time. Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a very bold choice, and it, and it really worked. It was incredibly effective. It sold a lot of magazines, but also sold a lot of video games after the fact, mm-hmm. after the free one. So it was, it was a really big deal. So there you go. Nintendo of America has been pushing Dragon Warrior for Dragon Quest for since the very 20 beginning. years. Yeah, over 20 years. So the answer to the bonus question, uh, which item gives you coordinates to the uh, to other important quest items, is called Princess's Love. And it's uh, it's an item that you get after you rescue the princess of... Uh, ad, 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 what's, what's the kingdom's name? <laughs> I don't know because I think they changed Al- it. Alephgard. Alephgard. Okay. It's been a long time. Uh, yeah, it was Alephgard. And so the, the when you first start the game, that's your supposed... That's supposedly the point of the game, is to rescue the princess. And you end up doing it about probably one-third through the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it turns out there's actually a lot more to it after that. And you have to use... She gives you an item called the Princess's Love, which gives you literally coordinates. Like, you, you know, the next item is three spaces to the right and 49 steps down on the overworld. And often that meant... It was across several oceans and rivers and bridges, and it was, you know, it could be a long way off. But it helped you locate these things that were sort of just sort of randomly hidden on the map. And that's how you got the, the items that you needed to reach the Dragon Master, the Dragon Lord, and defeat him at the end. 
They really abused that item system. I mean, Johnny and I were talking about this briefly before the podcast, but I think you have a limited set of a limited number of slots, and it's not very generous. And so you're really forced to use or drop a lot of stuff because you you accrue a lot of these items that you need to complete your quest, and they take up slots. That's right. In your inventory, which help, makes the game more difficult as it goes on. Actually, it sort of helps balance out the fact that you're gaining levels and and new equipment and becoming more powerful because you can carry less sundries. You know, you can't carry as many healing herbs once you're once you're full of the magic flute and magic keys and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the ma- and the keys in that game were very expensive and also consumable. And once you opened a door, once you left the screen and came back, it would be reopened again. Yeah. Or maybe it was just after you died or saved or something. But it, it basically, you, you would have to reopen doors. So you tried to do everything you needed to do on the other side of that door in one go. I don't think there was a save in this game, Johnny. Yeah, there was. There was? Yeah, there's the only save point was talking to the king at the castle. Oh, why did I think... Okay, so it was almost as though there wasn't a save point. You had to go back to the king. Okay. Yeah, you had to go back to... But there was a spell called Return that you learned that took you back to the king. Right. To save. Okay. But that could be pretty far from where you were. So sometimes there was a lot of, you know, going back over areas to, to get back to where you were. Yep. And the same thing happened when you died. You went back to the king with half your gold. But you kept your experience, and that's a big deal. Yeah, and they've kept that oh, yes. ever since. Well, they've kept <laughs> most of the things that were done in this game. They're all the way through Dragon Quest IX. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, requested by Jovial Jeffer. And the next one is uh, by Andrew Newton, who I believe requested this three years ago or oh, so. Oh, dear. I hope he yeah. still listens.
Wow, that sounds really good for an NES game. <laughs> we we play more than just NES games on the show. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's okay. yeah. Hmm. I know. Then I'm stumped. Yeah, I'm all out. Well, I know that song from really old Louis FM <laughs> broadcasts. Is, is Louis FM still on? Is it, I, it's I called think, something different. Yeah, right? Aaron has something that he has running off the site. I don't deal with it anymore. I used to manage the playlist for Louis FM, but I, mm-hmm. I definitely don't do that anymore. So, so uh, maybe in the article we can tell people how to access that. It's a it's an internet radio stream that cycles through a bunch of game music, and you can listen to it anytime. It's just kind of uh, on automatic. Yeah. That's my understanding. Yeah, and it's there's a lot of good stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Hint question. Which character in this game also appears in the Tekken series? Hmm.
That sounds kind of like an RPG. Yeah, you know, it reminded me a lot of Fire Emblem games for the like the GameCube. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I don't know if it's the synth instrumentation or what. But... It's not an RPG or a strategy game. No, it's neither. This is, uh, how do we say this properly? Soul Calibur. I don't, I don't. Isn't there some horrible announcer? I don't know. Yeah, there is. So, Soul Calibur 2 uh, for the GameCube and other contemporary consoles. That's right. Um, I think it was in the arcade, too. Yeah, you know, all these fighting games have really cheesy announcers. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I don't know why that's tradition, but it is. Toasty! So, my experience with the Soul Calibur series consists of me totally not understanding it on the Dreamcast when I was visiting a friend's house, and then... Uh, watching Ty Sugar uh, win every time. Uh, That's what Ty Soul does. Two. That's what Ty does. Yeah, I know. So I, I really can't say anything about Soul Calibur Two. Well, I'm not an expert on this game <laughs> by any means. I never owned it. I, there were times when I thought about buying it, but you know, I just I'm not the biggest fighting game fan, and my pro- my trouble is that. Even if I find one that I do really like, I have a hard time getting other people to play it with me, and so I end up playing against the computer, and that gets old real fast, yeah. and it just kind of sours you on the whole experience. And Smash Brothers is probably the only exception to that rule, because I, I never had too much trouble finding people to play it with me, fortunately. But yeah, Soul Calibur 2, I mean, I always thought it was a really impressive game. Actually, the first Soul Calibur is by far the most impressive Dreamcast game. Yeah, it's beautiful. It was like early in the... I don't know if it was a launch title. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it it still looks good today. It doesn't look as good as the sequels, of course, but still it holds up really well despite being a 1999 release. And yeah, I mean, Soul Calibur started as... It's kind of the sequel to Soul Edge, I believe. Well, it was Soul Blade in the arcade and Soul Edge on the PS1, I think. I might have that reversed, but it, it was one way or the other. Uh, and then Soul Calibur was sort of the follow-up or the sequel to that, and Soul Calibur was a lot more popular than mm-hmm. either of those games. And, it, and the idea was that, you know, with all the different fighting games around in the 90s, none of them really had you use weapons. And I think Namco's idea with Soul Calibur and its predecessors and its successors was let's make a fighting game series that's all about fighting with weapons. And every character will have a different weapon and it'll make the whole thing more dynamic because the characters will have different ranges, you know, and different different styles, different speeds. And the weapons really factor into how you play these games. It's a, it's a matter of, you know, have to not only understand how to use all your characters' punches and kicks and jumps and blocks, but also how to make good use of their unique weapon. And that's, it's fun, you know, it's, it's really good, and, and the series has always looked amazing and played really well, and that's why it's popular. Birdie. Yeah. And then, of course, on the, with Soul Calibur 2, they did this console-specific oh, yeah. character for each, for each version of the game, and on GameCube it was Link, which was pretty awesome, although I always got the sense that he was really overpowered and unbalanced. Yeah. Because he, he had so many projectile attacks, whereas most of the other characters in the game don't have projectile attacks. It made him really cheesy to play with, and, and I saw people in tournaments once. This was at, well, I don't know if the, it was a Soul Calibur tournament. We were at a Smash Brothers melee tournament for sure, and people were playing Soul Calibur too. And that was one of the first times I'd really seen it up close and got to play it and, and see a lot of it. And yeah, I, I, the people who picked Link seem to be kind of annoying with him. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure if you're a really good player, you can deal with that. But for a for a novice player, it might be hard to compensate for all those projectiles but it was cool if i were playing as link you'd still be able to beat me trust me <laughs> i never really understood how to play that game yeah and i think in the playstation version they actually had uh, one of the tekken guys 
was one of the, because Tekken was very much a PlayStation series at that point. And I think he was the unlock character for that version. And then on Xbox, for some reason, it was Spawn, the Todd McFarlane yeah. character. That was out of nowhere, because Spawn had nothing to do with Xbox, but they just thought that would be a, be a good fit, I guess. And and th- this trend of, of doing version-specific characters continued with, uh, well, Soul Calibur 3 was exclusive to PlayStation 2 for some bizarre reason, so they didn't have to do that. But for 4, they had, um, they had uh, Darth Vader for the uh, Xbox 360 version and Yoda for the PS3 version. And then I think eventually they released them on the other systems as like paid download yeah. content. So you could get both of them eventually, but it was good. I mean, it's, it's a cool idea that they can always look outside of their own franchises for other characters who also fight with weapons. Because And, and any, any character you can think of who fights with a weapon is, you know, potential inclusion. You got Conan the Barbarian or, you know... Anybody who fights with a with a big weapon is a is a you know possible choice for this. The Grim Reaper. <laughs> yeah. There you from, go. You're gonna from, have Billy and from Bill and Ted's <laughs> Bogus Journey. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of uh, Billy and Mandy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it, it's a it's a good idea, and yeah, this is a fun series. And they just recently announced Soul Calibur Five, which is uh, who knows maybe it'll come to Wii U. I think it'll be around the right time for that kind of a thing. So it's quite a possibility. In that case, we might see Link return yeah. or another Nintendo character. Maybe uh, Olimar. Yeah, maybe the <laughs> they're projectiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be the new cheese yeah. character. So who, who's the character that uh, appears in both this game and the Tekken series? It's Yoshimitsu. Okay. And he, he's very different in, in the two series. He's more of a, I think it's Soul Calibur, he's kind of this futuristic cyborg type character. And in Tekken, he's more of a like a feudal Japanese samurai type guy, but he's the same character and there's some kind of continuous background story uh, for, for both versions, but okay. I don't know much about it. He's definitely, <laughs> definitely one of the strangest characters in both games. And he has a very bizarre fighting style and he's really funny. So I, I, I just remembered that and I always liked Yoshimitsu. Alright, well thank you Andrew. We're going to move on to uh, a request from Stephen Reich, uh, also known as Yoshi1001, or like, I guess that's how I read it. Yeah. From Madison, Wisconsin. So here we go. Cool little song there. 
Yeah, there's a lot of cool songs in this game. This game's really underrated. That's a really happy song. I love NES music. I really do. <laughs> Johnny, why don't you read the question for the folks? Who stole the food? <gasps> Yo, who stole the food? This game is so good, and not enough people have played it, I think. I think it's a delicious game, except it probably gives you an upset stomach after you play it. <laughs> um, this is, well... MC Kids. Which, uh, of course, is a McDonald's-themed uh, game. <laughs> you know, as far as 1980s, probably early 1990s McDonald's promotional vehicles go, you could do a lot worse than MC Kids. Oh, you yeah. could do Mac and Me, which is a lot worse than MC Kids. They did. They did Mac and Me. I know. <laughs> uh, MC Kids is fantastic. Actually, it's very. It's actually. It has. It, it looks like a Mario platformer, but it has the feel more of a Sonic the Hedgehog game. It's mm. very fast paced. There's a lot of running and jumping uh, at very high speeds, and there's also a lot of gravity mechanics. Uh, so you spend a good bit of time running on the ceiling, mm. and there's also a lot of springboards and things like that that make you go really high. It's a really an unusual kind of mix-up of a game, and it's just very strange that it has this whole McDonald's tie-in thing for it. I mean, it's Japanese-made, it's very well-crafted. Uh, it's uh, two-player, I want to say it might be two-player simultaneous, it's wow. at least two-player al alternating. 
and uh, it's really good. The level designs are ingenious. There's lots of hidden areas. It's just the kind of game that I think a lot of people would love if they ever got to try it. And unfortunately, with all the licensing, it's just not not easy to find anymore. Yeah, I I've never played it. It's one of these games I've heard about. Someone brings it up every other year or so, and every time, like, yeah, I should play that. I mean, I never do. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't look like it would come to virtual console. No, I really doubt that. Yeah. I really doubt it. So, yeah, this is when I when I pick up my Turbo Retro Duo or whatever it's called. This is one of the games I'd like to track down on eBay because I haven't played it in a long time, but I loved it when I was a kid. I was just always kind of amazed at how good it is. It's good stuff. So, uh, as far as who stole the food. It's the Hamburglar, of course. Of course. <laughs> Who else would steal the food? <laughs> Once you know the McDonald's game. <laughs> right. It's pretty clear. Yeah. But yes, uh, if, you, if you ever get a chance, you should play MC Kids. It's great. There was a sequel, right? I believe there was. It was Japan only. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Japan only. Yeah. Man, they need to bring both of them out then. I know. Console. I've never played the sequel, so that's another one I should track down. The Kids it is. That was, once again, requested by Steven Yoshi 1001 Reich. Thank you for the excellent suggestion. Yes, thank you. Last game. That's like creepy circus music. I think that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I've played this game, and I don't, I wouldn't have recognized that song, but it's, I don't know if I'll ever forget it now.
I don't think anyone's going to get this game. Maybe not, but that was pretty impressive, actually, once you know once you know where, where this is coming from, which you will in a sec. <laughs> God, why do you have such spoilers in your questions, Johnny? Uh, Go ahead and read it. All right. Which sports franchise was this game's developer best known for on GBA? Johnny's played this game. Yeah. I know I, because I'm looking at his review for it right now. <laughs> that's right. This is Spider-Man Mysterio's Menace for the GBA. It was requested a random flashbang. Uh, a while ago, I've been wanting to use this game for a while, but I only recently found the soundtrack for it. So uh, I'm happy to have this uh, being played when Johnny is present because he's the expert <laughs> on Spider-Man and on this game. So Johnny, what makes this game so great? The play control is fantastic. That's a quote from my review. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, it's been a long time since I played Mysterio's Minutes, but I loved it when I played it. This was a, an early GBA game, one of the first, like, original action, in, in other words, not a port from Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first original action games for GBA that was really good. And it was the second GBA game, I think, from Vicarious Visions. They're, they had a launch title called Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, mm -hmm. which made big waves because it used uh, polygonal graphics that they had done in a in sort of a Donkey Kong Country technology style. Basically, they'd, they'd rendered these polygonal graphics and then taken like, almost like renders of them and then pieced that together in a very smooth animation system to make what looked like a 
sort of isometric 3D polygonal Tony Hawk game for GBA, which looked drastically different from anything else on the system at that point. Yeah. And the music for it was also really well done. It was kind of instrumental versions of the songs that were in uh, the console versions of Tony Hawk 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that they did that, they used very high high quality samples through the GAX sound engine, which was developed by Shine In Multimedia for the GBA. And they used it most effectively in their original games, Iridian and Iridian 2, but and uh, several other GBA games that Shine In made. But they also licensed it out to other developers, and Vicarious Visions was one of the most frequent users of that technology. And you, what you get is results that sound much better than anything you would get on Super Nintendo in terms of the fidelity of the, of the yeah. samples and the, the sort of modern electronic sounds that, that you hear in there on a system that had very poor audio performance compared to the Super Nintendo. Yeah. So yeah. it was really Sounds nicely really done. They used much newer technology for compression and things like that. They made very good use of it. But yeah, I mean, if you love Spider-Man games, and you know I do, especially portable 2D Spider-Man games, I especially love all the way back to the very flawed uh, Return of the Sinister Six on NES, which uh, is a is a messy game, but has certainly a, a number of things to recommend. And, and of course, uh, Arcade's Revenge, Spider-Man and X-Men Arcade's Revenge on Super Nintendo, which is another very uneven, inconsistent game, but has some very nice Spider-Man levels, actually. Um, this was, I felt like, the best 2D Spider-Man game I had played up to that point. And I think some of the Gryptonite games for DS have surpassed it at this point. But if you ever see a copy of Mysterio's Menace on some kind of budget shelf or something like that, you know, some kind of GameStop clearance thing, we got to get rid of all these damn GBA cartridges, pick it up. It, you, you will have a good time with it. I mean, it's a short game, but... At this point, who cares? Random Flashbang mentioned it was an interesting precursor to the Gryptonite, more Metroidvania-type games. Does it actually have more of that structure to it? It's kind of in between. Uh, So the game is broken up into levels. I think there's probably like five or six levels in the game. But the levels are really big, and they're sort of... They're they're non-linear within the containment of the level itself. So there, uh, there is some kind of exploration. It doesn't necessarily tell you exactly where to go or it's not really clear how you get to the end of the level. And there's some hidden things in the level too that you can optionally find. So yeah, it's sort of a, it is a precursor. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. But it's not like one unified world like you get in the, in the Gryptonite games. Mm-hmm. But Spider-Man feels really good. He, they, they make great, you, you can stick to any wall. You can web in any direction. I mean, they make really good use of that stuff. And that, those were abilities that in previous Spider-Man games, especially 2D games, had really been highly restricted uh, and, or in some cases just difficult to use. And this was the first game I felt like it really felt like you were Spider-Man, like you could just do any of the things that Spider-Man could do. And I was very surprised that they pulled that off on the GBA. Well, there you have it. Spider-Man, Mysterio's Menace. Is Mysterio some sort of carnival, evil carnival person? Uh, no, he's an illusionist, basically. He's actually a really corny villain, but he's he's popular, I guess. Okay. He wears a fishbowl on his head, which Spider-Man makes fun of a lot. All right, then. Anyway, uh, we're going to close up this show. So thank you, Johnny, as always, for, for co-hosting here and You're helping me pick the games from our master list. And, um, well... Uh, Keep tuning in. You can you can check Johnny out on, on several podcasts. <laughs> a, n- a number of them, yes. Just Google me. You'll find them, I'm sure. Well, okay. well, we just recorded RFN a few days ago. I'm sure they'll be up before this 
podcast right. is RFN up. RFN 250, the big one. But if you have not uh, heard it yet, uh, go check it out. I'm on uh, on it as well, both the live segment and the, the pre-recorded segment, at least part of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was long, but uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and so check it out. Um, and check out, uh, if you like music podcasts, John, you have a music podcast, don't That's you? right. I have one called Discover Music Project, and uh, you can find it on iTunes. You can just search for that on iTunes, or you can also go to crosstalk.com with a W and find it there. And uh, it's mostly um, non-game music, but I'm not opposed to having game music on there sometime. And Mike and I are talking about some ideas. So we might feature a particular composer, for instance, something like that. And I think... Greg also has expressed an interest in doing something like movie scores, hmm. which would be really interesting. It's something he's very passionate about, and I know jack squat about movie scores. So that would be really interesting to have you guys on there and uh, and branch out a little bit from the classic rock and 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 modern uh, hipster rock that have, have been our mainstays so far. <laughs> I don't know if you could call uh, steel guitar uh, mainstream, but okay. No, 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 I, well... It's, it's neither of those. You're right. No, I mean, those, but a lot of our episodes can be yeah. collected into those categories. But I, I, I'm always trying to diversify. All right. Anyway, we're going to close up. Bye, everyone. Yep. Bye-bye. Metroid is copyright 1986 Nintendo. Dragon Warrior is copyright 1986-1989 NX. Soul Calibur 2 is copyright 2003 Namco. MC Kids is copyright 1991 McDonald's Corporation Version Games. Spider-Man Mysterious Menace is copyright 2001 Activision. Alright, what item gives you coordinates to other important quest items? Coordinates. Did I say that wrong? No. Oh, okay. 
And uh, we have five listener requests this uh, this episode. Just trying to clear some of the trying to clear some of the backlog. Uh, yes, if, if you're familiar with RFN, um, you already maybe know this. But <laughs> there is a dog, <laughs> and he is here. <laughs> so our third. What? 